Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Today is the last in our series on the great expectations. God has great expectations for his church. God has great expectations for his people. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon about a great message we have to proclaim. It's the gospel message. It's a great message that God has given to the church to proclaim to the world. Peter preached that great sermon at the end of that day of Pentecost. He preached that great sermon and basically left the people hanging. How do you respond when you hear a message like that? How do you respond when you hear the great message that Peter preached? I did have a great illustration that I was going to open up the sermon with, but I thought the best thing for me to do, let's just let Scripture, t- scripture speak for itself. We're going to go back and read the passage from two weeks ago, just to kind of get a running start in today's sermon. So if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, we'll kind of recap or read through what Peter said and let the Word of God speak this morning. God's word says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purposes and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. And you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What a great message that was proclaimed on that day. An invitation is extended to the people. How do you respond when God gives you an invitation? How do you respond when a great invitation is given to you to respond? This is the conclusion of our series on the great expectations. And we're going to conclude it with Peter's closing remarks. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. And we'll look at these words this morning under the heading, Responding to a Great Invitation. Listen to what God's Word says. 
When the people heard this, that's everything that was just said, especially the last part. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Three truths I see in this passage. At least three truths that are applicable for this morning. The first thing we see is responding to a great invitation leads to conviction. Look at verse 37. As it says in the word, when the, when the people heard this, they heard that they had crucified Jesus and that God had made him both Lord and Christ. Meaning that he is God and he's also the anointed Savior of the world. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Luke wants us to know that they'd received a mortal blow. It really, it really called them out. They had been convinced that what they did was terrible. Peter had convicted them that they took the very one that, G, that God had appointed and then they crucified him along with wicked men. Suddenly, upon hearing that message, their eyes were opened to a truth that had earlier been veiled to them. And the truth of the fact is that before people can be touched by the worth of God's invitation to salvation, they must first grasp the depth of their sinfulness. If they can never acknowledge that they're a sinner, they will never be ready to receive God's grace for their sins. I remember years ago looking at a picture by Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted a picture of the, the crucifixion. And of course, as you look at the picture, you're immediately drawn to the image of Christ and the agony he's suffering on the cross. But then you begin looking at the crowd of people standing around the cross. Uh, standing around the cross. Many of them have different expressions on the face. Some of them are laughing. Some of them are weeping. Some of them are in fear. Some of them are angry. But suddenly your, 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 your eyes go to the end, to the edge of the picture. And the edge of the picture is a picture that, of Rembrandt himself. That he painted himself into the portrait of the crucifixion. Rembrandt realized that his sins put Jesus on the cross. His sins was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That may seem strange to you and I. It may be hard to grasp. You're probably sitting there saying, I wasn't there. But your sins were. Amen. Your sins were there. And so Jesus Christ died. The Bible is clear. Jesus Christ died for all sins, past, present, and future. He died for everyone who would ever sin. He died for them. The Bible is clear. So they appealed to the disciples, the, 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 the people there in the audience, and they heard this. They were cut to the heart, and they make this appeal to the disciples. Brothers, what shall we do? How can we be relieved of this guilt? How can we be relieved of this responsibility? How can we find forgiveness in all of that? <coughs> and with that question, they are confessing their guilt. They're confessing their helplessness to save themselves. They're confessing their helplessness to be right with God. And they are submitting themselves to learning what it means. They're submitting themselves to the disciples. Tell us what we got to do. Tell us what we have to do to rid ourselves of this. 
See, being convicted of our sins and recognizing our need for a Savior is the first step in accepting this invitation. You got to admit that you need a Savior. Recognize your sins. There's two things that come out of this application for you and I. The first thing you got to ask yourself, if somebody asked you that question, what must I do to be saved? Could you tell them the answer? Could you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, tell somebody else what they need to know to be saved? Or I say, well, let me go get the preacher. Let me go get the pastor. Or you need to call the church office. No, you need to be ready at that moment to give an answer. You got to be ready. Can you do that? The disciples are ready to give an answer. The first question, though, the second thing is, have you responded? Have you responded to a place in your life where you acknowledge your guilt when you stand before God and say, what shall I do to be released of this sin, to be released of my guilt? That's the, that's the first truth. Second truth, <coughs> responding to a great invitation leads to change. They cried out, what shall we do? The, the disciples were ready with the instructions. They tell them in this passage a couple things. The first thing that Peter says, he says, repent. Repent. Now, some people see this phrase, repent, and they say, where is the call to believe? How did Peter and Paul line up? Because Paul told the Philippian jailer, when he asked that question, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So people look at Peter and say, Peter never calls anybody to believe. He just calls them to repent. But you need to understand the dynamic of this word repent. The word repent means to change one's mind. What's Peter asking to do? He says, I'm asking you to repent. I'm asking you to change your mind of what you previously thought about Jesus as he was just a man. Now you need to understand him as Lord in Christ. So he's asking them to, to, to repent, change their mind of what they previously believed about Jesus. So believing in repentance is the, is, the, is the same coin. Believing on one side, repenting on the other. The need for repentance reminds us that no one comes to God without a change of heart. You can't believe without repenting, and you can't repent without believing. You can't do it. It's the same thing. Today, a person repents when he acknowledges a sin. He acknowledges that he needs somebody to forgive him. And he believes, and he believes that Jesus Christ paid the way for him to find that forgiveness. You can't really believe without repenting, and you can't really repent without believing. It's just as true today. I remember reading a story about some, a Sunday school teacher asked her Sunday school class, what does it mean to repent? And one little boy raised his hand. He said, it means that you're sorry for what you did. And a little girl raised her hand and says, no, teacher, it's being sorry enough to stop. She's right. She's right. Repentance means I'm sorry enough that I'm going to stop what I was doing. I'm going to totally change. It's like you're walking this way. See, we like to do it this way. We repent, we stop, we reflect upon it, and then we keep going. No. Repent means I stop, I reflect upon it, and I change my ways. That's what repentance means. It's not just having warm fuzzies and good thoughts. It's about radically changing your opinion about Jesus and say, today, I'm following him. That's what he's asking them to do. Only a person, well, once a person understands and he believes, he will accept Jesus as Lord. 
It means he'll no longer live, as, live in control of his own life. Instead, he says, Lord, the life I live is not mine, it's yours, and I'm living for your glory, and I'm living for your honor. That's what it's meaning to change your mind, to repent. Peter says it's not enough just to say that Jesus is the Christ. You've got to say that Jesus is Lord of my life. Listen, listen. The devil knows that Jesus is the Christ, and he's lost. He's lost, and he's going to hell. The place that's consigned him, it's not enough just to believe that he's the Christ. You've got to believe it to the point that you would change your life and live by his commands. Not, not salvation by works. Salvation by grace that produces works. Notice something else he says in this passage. You got to repent and be baptized. Oh, this is a problem for us Baptists. This is the problem. A lot of people look at that and they say, oh, I have a problem with this scripture. How do we justify this passage? What, what do we mean about that? I remember in a, in a church where I previously served, I was rallying all the pastors in the area to, to form a ministerial alliance to, to benefit the, the helpless and the homeless and, and, uh, and the hapless in our, in, our, in our community. And I went to one church of a different denomination and I began talking with the minister there and asked him to join this alliance that was in because it was for the good of the community. And he said, oh, I can't be a part of that. And so we began talking a little bit and the, the, the thing of baptism came up. And he talked about this particular denomination being the baptism saved you. And so me being a, a young, naive pastor, I just asked a hypothetical question. I said, so you mean to tell me that if I went down and I took everybody in this city down to the river and I baptized them, they'd be saved? Logical question. He said, oh, no, no, no. There has to be a change of heart and belief in Jesus first. I said, I rest my case. Listen, no amount of baptism saves anybody. Amen. Matter of fact, I've, just, I've discovered an important, important thing. That if somebody is baptized and does, does not believe in Jesus Christ, they're just getting wet. That's all it means. It has no power whatsoever to change an individual's life. I always use the illustration of the wedding ring. I used that this morning. This wedding ring does not make me married. What makes me married is a commitment I made in my heart. The wedding ring is simply a symbol of inward commitment. That's what baptism is. It's an outward confession of an inward commitment. He said, be baptized. Peter says that the at baptism, the external application of water is important. But he's not saying that if you're not baptized, your sins remain. That's not what he's saying. He's, the, really the way you need to understand this passage is repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ on account of the forgiveness of sins. That little word there, for, is the Greek word ice, and it can mean several things. Because of, uh, for, on account of, and so the proper way to say, be baptized on account of your forgiveness of sins. It's a demonstration of their faith. That's what Peter's asked them to do. He says, I'm asking you to demonstrate your commitment. I'm asking you to demonstrate your, this change in your life by giving yourself to baptism. An outward sign of an inward commitment. He's asked them to make a radical public statement of their new life. That we are turning from this and we're changing our life to live this way. Others have a problem with this passage because it's repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, wait a minute. 
But Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how do we justify this? Here's what Peter is doing. Peter is asking them to publicly identify with Jesus. That's what he's asking them to do. Don't get all caught up in the semantics of the wording. He said, I, he is asking them, he's saying, this is the necessity of trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior life for salvation. That's what you're getting baptized for. Peter says, follow these instructions. Believe. Uh, he says, repent. Be baptized. He says, and once you do that, then you receive the Holy Spirit. Just like everybody else says, I like this. He says, this, this promise this promise is for all your children and those who live far off. That's us. That's us. This is a promise for everyone that will believe, that will turn their life to Jesus Christ. Peter said, follow these instructions. Third truth. Responding to a great invitation leads to commitment. Peter knew something about human nature, or better yet, the Holy Spirit knows something about human nature, and he communicated this through Peter. Peter knew that people have a tendency to avoid making commitments. Uh, you know, Christianity is optimistic about grace, but it's pessimistic about human nature, uh, if I can say that. Uh, many of us know the right thing to do. We know what we're supposed to do, but, but we hesitate, and we procrastinate, we delay, we postpone, we balk, and we waver about making that decision. You know this is true in your own life. Just ask any lawyer who's asking those people to prepare a will uh, for when that eventual time's going to come. And, oh, I'm not, I'm not quite ready to do that. Ask any insurance salesman trying to sell life insurance to somebody uh, for that lifetime. Well, here's one. Ask any cemetery plot salesman who's trying to get you to invest in that last piece of real estate you ever own. And we balk, we waver. I say, I'm not quite ready to make that decision yet. To get people on the track of positive action may take a lot of persuasion, may take a lot of encouragement. Look at verse 40 <coughs> in this passage. He says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. A lot of people would rather put off rather than reject Jesus outright. All that is required for you to reject Jesus is to do nothing. That's all that's required. If you go back and look at the parable of, of, the, of the great feast in Luke chapter 14 verses 15 to 24. It says that Jesus, uh, the, the, the household, the, the, the owner of the house invites people to come to the feast. And people decided not to come. So they were replaced by strangers and people in the highways and the byways. They were invited, but they just simply refused to go. They refused it. Peter pleaded with them. He pleaded with them in many things. He said, make this decision. Peter is not just asking for a private or individual conversions, but he's asking for a public identification with other believers. That's what he's asking for. He said, I'm asking you to publicly identify with this group of people that we too are followers of Jesus. It's an identification. This is the one that's going to get you. Commitment to Christ implies a commitment to the church. Now, we're getting in some dangerous territory here. Commitment to Christ implies a commitment to the church. Peter knew 
that they were going to continue living the way that society dictated to them, then there was no hope. This generation had led them astray. Peter saying, pull yourselves out of this generation. Pull yourself out of this society. That's what he says in that passage. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He said, get out of this corrupt society and get into a good society. Get into a good people. Get yourself in the church. Get yourself surrounded by followers of Jesus Christ and get out of this corrupt society. That's what he's telling them. He says, I'm, he says, I'm asking you, not just make a commitment to Christ, but make a commitment to follow him with these other believers away from this corrupt society. That's what he's asking them to do. These words could very easily apply to our, our current situation. As a church, we are, we are to help people realize that when they come to Christ, they are leaving behind sin and they're beginning a new life. They're beginning a new lifestyle. And we've not done a good job at that church. And that's why our mission statement, our vision statement says, we exalt Christ, we equip the church, and we engage the community. If we're only exalting Christ and we're not engaging the community, we're failing in our commands. We're not doing what God has called us to do. If this doesn't happen, if we don't leave the corrupt society, then, then there's not the radical turnaround that the Bible calls for. You can't continue to follow Christ and follow the world. You can't do it. Unfortunately, there are indications that this has not taken root in evangelical churches. You need proof? Let me give you some proof. Look around at the empty seats. We have over 400 people on rolls at this church. But on any given Sunday, half of them are here. Half of them. They're not taking seriously the call of Christ. I recognize there's extenuating circumstances. I, I, you know, I'm not being uh, mean-spirited here. I'm just trying to speak the truth in love, okay? That's my job. If you don't like it, then blame it on God, okay? Don't blame it on me. I'm just a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger because of the message. We've got a problem, folks. Not just Western Heights, all churches. Churches that have 6,000 on a row and 2,000 are there on a Sunday. Where are the other 4,000? I often wonder if heaven is going to be full of halfway Christians. I wonder. We've got a problem. I think maybe perhaps what we're falling into in the church is we're calling people to be a fan of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus. We applaud for Jesus, but we ain't following him in the field. A lot of us were fans of, can I say this, the New England Patriots or the Philadelphia Eagles, but we don't follow them. We're fans. If they win or lose, it doesn't impact our life whatsoever. And I'm afraid that's what we've raised up in society is a bunch of fans of Jesus. But none of us are really following him. The truth is, we live in a godless society. We live in a society that's full of corruption. And if we continue living in that way, it will lead to our destruction. Listen to the word of God. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He invites you to be saved. 
Peter invites us to be saved. And the, and the Holy Spirit it comes in our life to warn us and to encourage us what we need to do. And the objections that we have, they're just smoke screens. That we don't really want to get serious about it. Now I think it's safe to say that on the day of Pentecost, everybody had a reaction. Everybody had a response. Even the individuals that chose not to follow Jesus made a choice. They chose not to follow Jesus. But Luke only focuses on the 3,000 that did choose to follow Jesus. Can you imagine the baptismal service that day? We would have had to bring in helpers to do it. Can you imagine that? I get a little misty-eyed just thinking about it. We might not even have any preaching that day, Brother Eugene. We just let baptism preach for itself, brother. Did Peter pressure them? You know, did, did Peter ask them to rush to make a decision? Man, you got to make a decision today. You got you to do this now. I mean, in light of the passage, Peter might be thinking, hey, we'll see the prophecy of Joel come fulfillment. Jesus might come back tomorrow. You better make a decision today because you may not have tomorrow. Is he trying to scare them? Is he trying to say, you know, using scare tactics? Or, or should he have given them more time to respond? I remember reading the autobiography of uh, D.L. Moody. And yeah, D.L. Moody said that the greatest uh, tragedy in his life is when he preached a message on October the 1st, 1871. I uh, know October some 1871. I remember the exact date. To give the people one more week to think about his message of repentance. Well, one more, I'm going to give you one more week. I want you to go home and you think about it. On October the 8th, 1871, the great Chicago fire broke out and many of the people never got a second chance to respond. That's why we as Baptists, we as evangelicals, that's why we actually have invitations. Why? Because we want you to respond. I have done a tragedy to the Word of God. If I don't give you an opportunity to respond to the Word of God and you leave here and get hit by a car and die without Jesus Christ, I've done a tragedy in your life. But I have confidence in this. That when I get to heaven, and I hear about that, and I cry over that, Jesus will wipe away all my tears. Because His grace is sufficient to cover all my sins. All my sins. The ones I commit, and the ones I omit. Like maybe I don't love you enough. Maybe I don't preach hard enough. Maybe I don't have enough faith. What's your response? How do you respond to God's invitation? How do you respond to a message like this? I want you to know that Jesus has invited you to receive Him as Lord and Savior today and to make a public commitment of Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. How are you going to respond? In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. A time when you can respond to what you've heard. How do you respond to a great invitation? Not the one I'm giving, but the one that Jesus Christ says to you, all who come will be saved. Amen. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that today? 
Have you made it public? Have you committed your life to Jesus? Would you stand with me? Kip's going to lead us a song of invitation. And we're going to invite you to come. Maybe you need Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Maybe there's some prayer requests that you have. We'll be here for you. Josh going to come up. Marcy's going to make her way down. We'll be here for you. Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given to us, Father, to witness baptism, Father, to worship, Father, through song, through prayer, through giving, through your word. Now we pray, Father, that you will speak to our hearts this morning. Oh, God. Oh, God. Invite those of us who need a closer walk with you. Those of us, Father, that may have never made a commitment. Or, Father, maybe we've just strayed away. Whoever we are, whatever our situation, we pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.